This is the Core IM Thigh Pearls Podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. I'm Dr. Shroy Trivedi, an internist at BIDMC. And I'm Dr. Lior Busi, a second-year internal medicine resident at BIDMC. And today, we'll be talking all things sickle cell. Quiz yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, sickle cell pathology. What are the two major buckets of bad outcomes that sickle cell pathology causes? Pearl 2, transfusion. What are the indications for a simple transfusion? And then what are the indications for an exchange transfusion? Pearl 3, pain management. What's your approach to pain management in patients with sickle cell? Pearl 4, treatment. What are some of the treatment options for sickle cell and which ones actually decrease sickle crises and improve mortality? Pearl 5, complications of disease. What are some of the major sickle cell complications to watch out for and how can we prevent some of them? Okay, so I sat down with Dr. Nancy Berliner, the Chief of Hematology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Editor-in-Chief of Blood, and just a general legend in all things (laughs) hematology to discuss sickle cell disease. That sounds like no big deal, (laughs) but really a, a pretty big deal. So I'm so looking forward to hearing all her teaching points. Absolutely. Let's make sure we're all up to speed first on the fundamentals of sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease is primarily been selected for because the mutation makes the hemoglobin abnormal and makes the red cell inhospitable to malarial parasites. And so it's been selected for in areas of the world where malaria is endemic. Wow, I always forget that this is a disease that evolved as a way to protect against another disease. Yeah, and this is sometimes referred to as the malaria hypothesis of sickle cell disease. And it's crazy that just one point mutation drives the whole course of this disease. So sickle cell disease is a point mutation in the um, that changes one amino acid in hemoglobin and changes it from a uh, charged amino acid to a neutral amino acid, which means that it makes certain facets of the hemoglobin molecule hydrophobic. And when sickle hemoglobin is oxygenated, it behaves pretty normally. But when it is deoxygenated and the conformation changes, it exposes the hydrophobic face and it tends to make the hemoglobin polymerize and stick together. And then as it goes through the microvasculature where the pH is low and they tend to get dehydrated and the vessels are small and it tends to be hypoxic, you get sickling. Wow. I really can't think of a worse place for sickling to occur. The microvasculature of active tissues. Yes. Agreed. And uh, that's when you get basal occlusion. So that's one of the main complications of sickle cell disease is this tendency for the cells to block small vessels and cause ischemia in in the microvasculature. In addition, because of the changes in the membrane, 
the cells become uh, less flexible, and so you get hemolysis. And so it's a combination of the risk of, of, um, of vasoclusion and then the risk of uh, chronic hemolysis. Then everything that comes, all of the many, many things that come over the course of the life of someone with sickle cell disease is mostly related to those two things. Okay, so it sounds like there's a lot to unpack, but let me just recap what I'm hearing so far. Sickling is going to lead to two major bad outcomes. One, vasoclusion from sickle cells blocking microvasculature, and two, hemolysis, because those RBC membranes aren't that flexible enough to live through constant sickling and unsickling. Now, we can imagine the downstream effect of all that sickling and hemolysis is going to be anemia. And at the same time, we often have this threshold to transfuse for any hemoglobin that we see less than seven. That's just kind of the reality of, of how we practice medicine for the most part. How do we reconcile the two? That's such a great question, Shreya, and I had the same one. So I asked Dr. Williner her thoughts on transfusion and sickle cell disease. We avoid it. <laughs> So we never transfuse somebody for a number. And the problem is, is if you do transfuse somebody for a number, you will transfuse them every time they come into the hospital. And that's how you end up with a patient with a ferritin of 5,000 and heart disease and liver disease and diabetes and all that stuff. So you're telling me that even if their hemoglobin is like 6.2, we still avoid transfusing? You know, they have scary looking crits, but if you look back, they've had that that same uh, that same blood count for months and months and months and years and years and years and really that's where they live and uh, and it's it's a you have to have a different mindset about what you think is too low. Okay, channeling a different mindset. I'm all about reframing and mindset. But geez, when do we transfuse in these patients? Routine transfusions are only if the patients appear to be symptomatic because of the anemia, or they have a aplastic crisis and their crits are going down very quickly, then obviously you do need to transfuse them. Okay. Symptomatic anemia and aplastic crises. Let's break that down a bit more. If we start with symptomatic anemia, Lyra, I got to tell you, my honest reaction to that is kind of sad. <laughs> the symptoms of anemia are just so vague, right? Like take fatigue, for example. Come on, everybody in the hospital is fatigued. Totally. I would say probably including us, you know, all of the providers. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I definitely hear that. And the way I try to work through it is to compare patients' current symptoms to their baseline. So, you know, are they more fatigued than usual, more short of breath? And I'm always humbled to remember that since patients live their whole lives with this disease, they'll often be able to tell us if they feel like they need a transfusion when things feel really off. Yeah, that's that's a very fair point. I've had plenty of patients kind of tell me like, hey, this is a time where I think I really need a transfusion. So appreciate that point. Let's move on to aplastic crisis and is an indication for transfusion. Sure. So aplastic crisis, just to refresh our memories, happens in the setting of some kind of stress, often a viral infection which essentially shuts down your bone marrow and stops red blood cell production. So we can expect an acute drop in hemoglobin and an inappropriately low reticulocyte count. Yeah, so let's just compare that for a second. So in a usual setting, if there's anemia and the bone marrow is working, you'd expect the reticulocytes to be really ramping up. But in a plastic crisis, the reticulocytes are going to be inappropriately low. Right. So I guess to appreciate what is inappropriately low, we need to know what's a normal reticulocyte count in this patient population. 
the normal reticulocyte count in a sickle cell patient is usually somewhere between 8 and 20%. I mean, it's usually very, very high. And that's because they need to, their red cell survival is so short that they need to constantly make uh, red cells. Wow. So these patients are constantly making red blood cells, aren't they? That's one of the reasons why patients are usually put on folate chronically is because they have a huge demand because they're making red cells all the time. Gotcha. So if they stop making reticulocytes in a plastic crisis, it's only a matter of time before their hemoglobin bottoms out. Right. So it makes sense to transfuse for aplastic crisis. And so now, now that I'm thinking about it, besides symptomatic anemia and aplastic crisis, are there any other situations we'd think of transfusing? Another great question and something I struggle with too, and as do many of my colleagues, I think. In sickle cell disease, we're constantly being told not to transfuse for a number. But Dr. Berliner, is there a number that would change your mind, a number low enough? And a lot of it, it depends on where they live. If somebody usually has a hemoglobin of six and a half and they go down to six, that's not so bad. If they usually have a hemoglobin of eight and a half and they go down to six, that's probably worse. So I think it, it's sort of a, it, it, there isn't a magic number, but there obviously is for every patient, there's some number where you decide, okay, we got to do something. That's super helpful. And for the numbers-oriented folks out there, like, you know, for example, me and Treya, <laughs> yes. uh, from, from what I read, numbers to keep in mind for simple transfusion are hemoglobin less than five and a hemoglobin of two or more points less than baseline. All right. I love me some numbers, but Lyra, you just dropped the word simple transfusion. And so why don't we think about that term a bit more? You know, I think we hear that thrown around and it always makes me pause for a second. What is a simple transfusion? Totally. Simple transfusion is something you're more familiar with than you think. It's just what most of us do when we transfuse patients in clinical practice. Oh, okay. So simple transfusion is just a regular transfusion I order for anybody on the floor. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to point out that aside from raising the hemoglobin, one benefit of transfusing patients with sickle cell disease is that the new red blood cells from the transfusion also reduce the ratio of sickled to total hemoglobin. So you have less sickling and less of a chance that two of these troublemaking sickle cells are going to run into each other and block off a capillary. Yeah, we do not want that. Okay, so I feel good about simple transfusion and the indication, right? Aplastic crisis, symptomatic anemia, lower than baseline. But why don't we kick it up notch and consider exchange transfusion? And maybe we should start with, what the heck is the difference between simple and exchange transfusion? <laughs> yeah, so in exchange transfusion, a patient's blood is actually removed and replaced with the same blood you'd give in an everyday simple transfusion. Hmm. Wait, why do we do that? Why do we need to remove a patient's blood in the process? So the answer to that question is viscosity. And with exchange transfusion, we can decrease the proportion of sickle hemoglobin quickly without running into hyperviscosity. Wait, so these patients already live at such a low hemoglobin, they can end up with viscosity issues? They can, and that's the trouble we can run into with simple transfusion. Yes, we decrease sickle hemoglobin, and that's great, but we increase the total hemoglobin and increase our risk for hyperviscosity. Hmm, that makes sense. Do you have a scenario to kind of cement that a bit more with hyperviscosity and simple transfusion? So let's say we have a patient with sickle cell disease who lives at a hemoglobin of six. We give them a few units of simple transfusion and their hemoglobin comes up to 10. Now, under normal circumstances, we might be pretty happy about this. You know, we think about our GI bleeders who come in with, with acute anemia, but remember, these patients live at a lower hemoglobin and we're significantly increasing it, almost doubling it in this case. 
So that puts these patients at risk for hyperviscosity. Yeah, and I'm glad you put it into some context with some numbers because, you know, I can see somebody easily scrolling by a hemoglobin at 10. You know, it's not red in the CBC panel and they wouldn't think of, you know, potentially hyperviscosity complications. So I guess with all that in mind, how do we know when to reach for simple versus exchange transfusion? If you're transfusing someone because they're very anemic, because they have an aplastic crisis or they're not making red cells for some reason, then that's a simple transfusion. If you're treating an acute chest syndrome, the, um, the practicality of trying to get enough um, normal red cells in the circulation to prevent ongoing sickling without having a huge rise in the hematocrit and a huge increase in viscosity, it makes sense to exchange people. So that's, we, we always exchange people when it's for an acute emergency, like an acute chest syndrome. So the big takeaway here is if someone's coming in with acute end organ dysfunction, we don't really have time to slowly decrease their sickle hemoglobin with simple transfusion. So we favor exchange transfusion in situations like respiratory failure, stroke, or a multi-organ failure, where you need rapid reduction in sickle hemoglobin and sickling without running into the risk of hyperviscosity. Nice. I'm really grateful we're sharpening our thresholds for transfusion because I think particularly with transfusion, we're always weighing pros and cons, and these transfusions are not without risk. Definitely. And Dr. Berliner has a wealth of experience in this domain, and she walked us through some pretty unforgettable stories about transfusion complications. The most feared complication and what can actually be lethal is hyperhemolytic uh, syndrome, which can develop and it's not common, but it does happen. So just to refresh our memories, hyperhemolytic crisis is a sudden severe hemolysis. You'll find an acute drop in hemoglobin and abnormal hemolysis labs. Wait a minute. A lot of these patients' sickle cell are kind of constantly having some low-level hemolysis at baseline. How do we go about diagnosing hyperhemolysis? Trey, you're always catching these, these difficult <laughs> issues that we run into. I thought we were just going to skate by. Yeah. So this is definitely true. An undetectable haptoglobin might be their baseline. And that's where some of these other markers like AST, indirect bilirubin, and LDH can be helpful as well, You know, comparing those levels in the acute situation to the patient's baseline levels. It's usually associated with certain specific antibodies that, that are formed. It's important to do extended typing on those patients because of the rate with which they will develop antibodies. And you can actually prevent many of the antibodies that are formed um, by having extended typing and being very, very carefully uh, careful how you cross-match patients. Okay, it sounds like it's going to be pretty important when we're ordering transfusions to be in close touch with a blood bank. So we had a patient who was in, um, who, who was often in the hospital, who had one or two antibodies that had developed very early on, and she was always she always had extended typing, and then she went to another hospital where they did not do extended typing and got blood that was matched for the two known antibodies, but otherwise was not nearly as carefully matched. And she then had 15 antibodies and became untransfusable. And 
she ultimately um, uh, developed a uh, had bone marrow necrosis and developed a uh, she went down to a hemoglobin of two or three and we ultimately had to do we had to transfuse her um, with the best blood that we could that was cross-match negative and treat her with all kinds of other things to try to get her through. We gave her eculizumab so that she wouldn't have complement-mediated red cell destruction. We did all kinds of things. And we got her through it the first time it happened. We didn't get her through it, her through it the second time. Wow. That sounds like an incredibly challenging case. Yeah. And really just like drills home that we need to do our due diligence to talk to blood bank, let them know, hey, I have a patient on my service who has sickle cell disease, send that typing screen early on in the admission and give them all the time that they need to do that careful extended typing. And Dr. Berliner also walked me through some of the other major complications of transfusion that we should be thinking about. But iron overload is a major problem and is in fact, I think, um, a leading cause of death among older patients with, with sickle cell disease. It's hard to unload people who have um, an anemic disorder because you can't phlebotomize them the way we do people with hemochromatosis. So they have to be on chelators. Yet another humbling reminder about the harms of transfusion, if we can avoid it. Yeah, exactly. So much to weigh here. So why don't we recap? So it sounds like in sickle cell, we throw away the idea of transfusing to a number goal and instead go with simple transfusion for when there's significant symptomatic anemia, when there's aplastic crisis, or there's an acute change from their baseline. And to think of exchange transfusion when there's some really uh, severe end organ damage. And regardless of which transfusion we order, I think we all should work with our pathologist colleagues to do the extended typing to prevent some of those lethal antibodies. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. I am so glad we talked all about transfusion. I think the other thing that comes up often, particularly when we're navigating vasoclusive crises in the hospital, is pain management. An acute vasoclusive crisis, it's virtually impossible to do anything but give narcotics. Yep. So this is not a time to be trialing that high dose uh, Tylenol TID only. Exactly. I asked Dr. Berliner her thoughts on what to initially put patients on, whether that's intermittent IV boluses of narcotics versus PCAs. So that's highly dependent on the sort of 
the psyche of the patient. If the patient wants a PCA pump, you should give it to them. The issue is to make it as much patient-controlled as possible. I'm a great proponent of PCAs and having patients control is that um, you can't push the PCA button if you're asleep. And we, one of the most horrifying experiences I had very, very long ago was someone who was in a room far away from the nurses in the days when the wards were not nearly as open as they are now and were not as easily accessible, who uh, got over-medicated and aspirated and died. Um, and uh, because, so it, it's the real um, things that make me nervous. The other thing is, is that if you stop breathing when you have sickle cell disease and you become um, hypoxic, then that just makes everything worse. So I think it's important to be liberal enough with narcotics that the patients are made comfortable, but it's always a juggling act. And that's one of the reasons that I think that uh, patient-controlled anesthesia is the way to go. Oh, I hear that. And that's a powerful case for PCAs. But it's always humbling to see that sometimes we as a team don't check in with how they're using the PCA or explain it well to them in the beginning to set them up for success. You know, they they wait until they're miserable and then they push it five times and they get one dose and then they say it's not working. Or they don't know to push it. They really don't. And and some of them know that. They come in and they you say, do you want a PCA pump? They say, no, they don't work for me. And those people you have to give intermittent boluses. And on top of the challenges of being in severe uncontrolled pain, these patients often face stigma just for the amount of pain medications that they require. And I think a lot of the problems with sickle cell patients' feelings about the medical system is that that um, they feel like they are viewed as being um, drug seeking, and that they are, you know, that they are not taken seriously, and tend to be um, put in a position where they feel they're being undertreated. And so, I think it's very important to listen to the patient. For the most part, when the patients come in, they are in in really terrible pain. It's probably as bad as as anything that anyone has ever had to deal with, and you have to um, you have to let them drive the the ship, and um, eventually try to get them to the point where they're they are ready to step back and and decrease it. I can't agree more. You know, I think we as clinicians are so used to driving that ship and titrating pain meds as we see fit, sometimes not even telling patients that we did it. But best practice in sickle cell and and really in general is is letting patients drive that ship. True. I agree with that a lot. And I think maybe like one of the reasons why sometimes we unfortunately take over that pain management plan is probably like our own feeling of helplessness. I think like they're already on such high doses of pain meds and sometimes they're not getting enough pain relief. The patients who don't get enough, get adequate relief, either because they're chronically on so much narcotics that it doesn't really work, is when you start trying things like ketamine. And um, that's something that has become more common. 
Ketamine is definitely not something we regularly reach for. So it's good to know we have that in our back pocket. Yeah. And then the other thing I've seen used is NSAIDs from time to time. But I always feel a little kind of cowboyish <laughs> in that because sometimes I worry that I'm going to cause a kidney injury and worsen some sickling. Definitely. NSAIDs do have associated risks, but ASH guidelines suggest that NSAIDs can be used as an adjunct for pain in an acute vasoclusive crisis for up to five to seven days. You know, of course, we want to look at each patient individually and, and weigh the risks and benefits and safety of NSAID use, as we always do in the hospital. But if there are no major contraindications, you can definitely consider them. Hmm, good to know. But yeah, proceed with caution with NSAIDs. I think the other pain point uh, is that acute pain management sometimes becomes chronic pain management. The real problem is not acute pain management but chronic pain management. And I, we, we actually do try pretty hard to keep people off chronic, long-acting narcotics. A lot of patients come to us on them, and some patients require them. But um, in the long run, I think part of the problem is, is that there's only so many opioid receptors that you can have. And so I, it's a mystery to me how all these enormous doses um, really do anything but make people hyperalgesic and make them have more pain. Okay. So that's a tough balance to strike, right? We are trying to keep them off narcotics long-term. And if they do need it, we're also balancing them not crossing over to the hyperalgesic side. It's also true that... Um, Sickle cell disease is, is associated with um, abnormal pain responses. So there have been studies that if you give a painful stimulus in the hand, in the hand and you look for changes in vascular uh, tone and, and vasoconstriction, in a normal person, you get an immediate vasoconstriction reaction. And as you repeatedly give that stimulus, it decreases. You sort of get used to it. In sickle cell disease, it increases. So they have, um, have altered uh, neural responses. That abnormal pain response is, is really important for us to understand because I think many of us are just not used to giving such high doses of narcotics. You know, like it's uncomfortable and, and challenging. But this really helps provide context for the pain and suffering that these patients experience and why they need these doses of medication. We have started using a lot more suboxone, buprofenone, um, for uh, patients. There are some patients who are unwilling to accept it. There are other patients who say it transforms their lives. And why, why haven't I been on this all along? And I think for people who are... Who, um, are requiring more and more narcotics because they are on chronically so many narcotics, it can be very helpful to do something like transition them to suboxone. Mostly because then when they come in an acute crisis, the narcotics work again. Ah, sounds like such a happy ending if our patients do respond well to suboxone. Yes, agreed. But even with perfect pain control, these patients still face so many barriers. I asked Dr. Berliner to share her thoughts on this, especially because the vast majority of patients with sickle cell disease are African-American. And 
it's well established that this population faces a lot of barriers in healthcare. I know that there are huge barriers to care for African-Americans, whether they have sickle cell disease or not. I think that the level of racism and, and, and health inequity is very high, um, even in places where, maybe even especially in places where they think that it isn't, and where where people think they're very conscious of these issues. And then the sickle cell population, because their main interaction with the healthcare system is when they're in pain. And I think it's also um, very difficult because it derails their lives. I mean, a lot of the patients, you know, they can't keep a job because they're in the hospital or they, you know, they didn't finish school because they spend so much time at home and, and things like that. This brings up why it's so important for us as clinicians to be as knowledgeable as we can be. It's interesting because certain hospitals have specialized units for patients with sickle cell disease. And so the interdisciplinary teams in these units get to know these patients really well. And ultimately, you see better outcomes, things like faster administration of pain meds, greater likelihood of rapid reassessment, and lower likelihood of hospitalization. Okay, so it sounds like big takeaways from this section are when patients are coming in with a vasoclusive crisis, we're going to be reaching for PCA or IV boluses of opioids with a slight preference to PCAs, really giving the patients control and coaching them how to use it well. Ketamine and short-term NSAIDs can be options. Suboxone can be helpful, especially if we're transitioning if someone's on chronic opioids. I think we just have to recognize this is such a terrible disease and that's on top of all the other barriers these patients often face in the medical system. Yeah, and we should be doing our best not to add to those barriers by being sympathetic to their pain, treating it adequately and appropriately, and on a systems level, organizing these specialized units with staff that are well-versed in helping patients through a pain crisis. You know, I think if we take nothing else away from this episode The most important thing is that the gold standard for assessment of pain and sickle cell disease is the patient's report. Okay, Lyra, I am so curious what you learned from Dr. Berliner about just overall treatment of sickle cell. I think maybe because the one that I remember the most is hydroxyurea. Yeah, I think you're not alone, Trey. I think that's the one that stands out in a lot of our minds. Dr. Berliner made a really good case as to why it's the best drug we have. Hydroxyurea was really the only drug that was demonstrated to have a real impact on long-term survival. And they had a big trial, and it was extremely effective in raising hemoglobin F levels. So you increase the number of F cells, and it had a profound effect on the rate of crises. So hydrea has turned out to be a great a great drug. And um, they initially did it in people who had lots of crises. And then they started using it in almost everybody. And then they started giving it to little kids. And actually, there are children who are started as toddlers on Hydrea, and they don't know what a sickle cell crisis is. They do great. The one thing you have to watch is, you know, it's a, it's a tough disease to live with. And patients don't always take all the things you give them. So one of the markers of taking hydrea is it makes your red cells really big. It causes megaloblastic changes. And so they get a very high MCV. So if a patient comes in and they're supposed to be on hydroxyurea, 
but their MCV is normal, we should definitely double check that they're actually taking their medication as prescribed. Yeah, I will definitely look out for that when I'm doing admissions. But speaking of admitting patients, I think the other thing that comes up with hydroxyurea often is, you know, is it safe to continue inpatient um, with a vaso-occlusive crisis or should we kind of say restart in a few days or when they're discharged? Definitely keep it going while they're in the hospital. Safe and appropriate to do so. Okay, nice. And then what are the other drugs except for hydroxyurea? So hydrea is um, is sort of the mainstay upper-level treatment. And for years and years and years, there was nothing else. It was supportive care. And then in the last few years, there have been two new drugs that have been introduced. Um, one is Voxelator, which is uh, a drug that shifts the oxygen dissociation curve. So it makes the um, the hemoglobin hang on, the oxygen hang on to the hemoglobin longer. There's been an ongoing controversy as to um, whether it does that at the expense of oxygen delivery. And so there is a huge um, back and forth about it because the clinical trial and the basis by which they approved Voxelator was actually based on an increase in hemoglobin and not on a reduction in sickle cell crises. And in fact, there was no change in the rate of sickle cell crises, despite the fact that people had better hemoglobins. Okay, so some really cool pathophys here. But sounds like uh, Voxelator stabilizes the hemoglobin, which is good, but won't necessarily protect our patients against another vaso-occlusive crisis and doesn't reduce mortality the way hydroxyurea does. Exactly. And Dr. Berliner had one more new drug she mentioned that uh, we might see patients on. The other drug is a, an, a biologic agent um, called crizinlizumab, a mouthful, which is a P-selectin inhibitor which uh, as we've learned more about sickle cell disease, turns out that adhesion of white cells and platelets have an important part to play. It's not just the red cells that are causing the problem. And it's a, they, they create inflammatory responses and there's a lot of, um, of involvement of white cells and, and, and platelets in the pathophysiology of crises and of sickle cell disease. And so this is an antibody that blocks adhesion to endothelial cells. Another cool drug, and yes, crizanlizumab does decrease sickle crises, but again, does not reduce mortality like hydroxyurea does. One other drug that's out there to be aware of is L-glutamine. And that's an oral agent that works through antioxidant action to reduce sickle crises as well. I'm curious, Liara, what are some of the downsides to all these novel drugs? I bet they're expensive. <laughs> they sure are, Shreya. Um, so you can imagine it's challenging getting them on formulary in major hospitals. And then, you know, if patients are going to take their home meds, they have to remember to bring them in, which presents challenges in and of itself as well. Yeah, true. So it sounds like the major theme here is that hydroxyurea is really the mainstay treatment. And then things like Voxelator or Chrysaliz oh gosh, Chrysalizumab. <laughs> I really Shreya, I think I think you're not gonna be alone in having trouble <laughs> with that name. Yeah. Uh, th so these two are gonna be adjunctive therapies. Let's move on to complications. Lyra, I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like a laundry list of things we should be looking out for. Sometimes it's hard to remember all of it. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's going to feel like that, Shreya, because unfortunately in sickle cell disease, basically any organ, you name it, can be affected acutely or chronically by sickling. That is so humbling to think about. Why don't we go through some examples? Sure. So in the liver, for instance, sinusoidal obstruction by sickled red blood cells can lead to sickle hepatopathy. And at the level of the penis, vasoclusion can cause priapism. In the lungs, microvascular obstruction can lead to pulmonary hypertension. Even in the spleen, early on in life, sickle cells lead to vascular obstruction and splenic infarction. Of course, nobody has a spleen. And then there are multiple infectious complications based on the fact that they are asplenic. Osteomyelitis and the thing that's sort of characteristically considered something that is unique among sickle cell patients is the prominence of salmonella as an infecting organism in osteomyelitis, although you get plenty of staph too. Gosh, what a refreshing throwback to an association I think we all memorized some time ago. All right, so that's the spleen. What about the brain? In adults, you also can get strokes, but they're of a different kind. They tend to be related to um, neovascularization in the brain, and they're basically AV malformation type lesions, and they can bleed, and people can get devastating strokes. So, patients who have that tend to get exchange transfused based on what we know about pediatrics. Okay, we'll definitely be on high alert for strokes in this population. Absolutely. And I think of kidney disease as a pretty big issue as well. Renal failure can be a major problem. If, if you have a cell uh, in a very hypertonic environment, then it will, water moves out of the cell and the concentration of hemoglobin rises. And so the concentration of unoxygenated hemoglobin rises and the cell is more likely to sick. So all, almost all sickle cell patients have infarcted the papilla of the kidney. And so by the time they're adults, they can no longer concentrate their urine because they've lost the um, inner medulla, which is where all of the concentrating mechanisms uh, take place. This can lead to patients peeing out a lot of extra free water and becoming pretty dehydrated. For those interested, the term for this is isostenuria. If you want to sound smart on rounds, <laughs> just drop some isostenuria. <laughs> yeah. We got to get some nephrologists in here to make sure I pronounce that <laughs> right, right. Exactly. We do have patients who are actually on dialysis, but in general, the, um, the loss of concentrating ability does not affect the glomerulus so that most of the other functions of the kidney are, are still intact. So they don't develop end-stage renal disease. What they do is they get very predisposed to becoming dehydrated. And dehydration is very bad for sickle cell patients. That's one of the reasons why every patient who comes in the hospital with sickle cell disease is put on fluids, sometimes to their detriment, because as they get older, they tolerate the fluids less well. We tend to drown them, which is not good either. But um, in general, the, the, at least conceptually, it makes sense that you would want to make sure that they were extremely well hydrated. Okay. And then which type of fluid to help prevent that dehydration is where things get a little interesting and nuanced. So you'll often see people practice in a way that they're often giving hypotonic fluids, like one half normal saline or half normal saline. The idea here is that sickle cells are slightly dehydrated. And so a slightly hypotonic environment might be beneficial in promoting water entry into the red cells. 
Yeah, or at least that's the idea in theory. I, I think we will need a large-scale prospective clinical trial to tell us which fluid will give the optimal environment for these cells and what the associated clinical outcomes would be. Uh, I'm so surprised there isn't a trial like that yet. But yeah, it's so good to know in theory, but you know, hasn't panned out in, in studies yet. But it sounds like either way, the takeaway here is that patients are going to lose a lot of fluid and we want to prevent that vicious cycle of dehydration and more sickling in the kidneys. The last big complication in sickle cell disease that we're going to talk about today is acute chest syndrome. This is from acute vasoocclusion in the pulmonary microvasculature. The tough thing about diagnosing an acute chest is it's virtually indistinguishable from pneumonia. Yeah, I think it's a tough diagnosis, right? Because the criteria for acute chest is basically pulmonary infiltrates plus one of the following fever, hypoxemia, tachypnea, use of accessory muscles for respiration, chest pain, coughing, wheezing, rails, <laughs> the things we'd expect with pneumonia. Yeah, so really going to be pretty hard to tell. So you have to basically treat any possible pneumonia in a patient with sickle cell disease as an acute chest until proven otherwise. So your management's going to include antibiotics plus consideration of simple transfusion if it's a very mild acute chest versus exchange transfusion if their presentation is worsening or, or more severe. And last but not least, always important to assess for possible PE and venous thromboembolism in these patients. Something that I think we underappreciated until actually relatively recently um, is the significance of thromboembolic disease in this population. If they have really striking pleuritic chest pain, um, you need to make sure they don't have PE. We used to be very frightened about doing PECTs on people because... If someone's in the middle of a crisis, giving them dye is not a good thing to do. Dehydrate their red cells a little more. Um, but um, but we but we have become much more conscious of the fact that you can get DVTs and PEs in, very easily in these patients. Great. And so while we're talking about management, we should give some space to talk about prevention. Lyra, you gave a talk to your co-residents that I was fortunate to be at and was inspired by because you were talking about this and I, I didn't know this. I didn't know how compelling the data was for incentive spirometry to prevent acute chest. I'm so glad you brought that up, Shreya. There was one small RCT back in 1995 that I really liked. So guess how much incentive spirometry decreased the risk of pulmonary complications in hospitalization for upper body vasoclusive crisis? I don't know, maybe like half? It actually decreased the risk from 8 out of 19 hospitalizations in the control arm to only 1 out of 19 hospitalizations in the incentive spirometry arm. So, you know, it's a small study, but pretty striking clinically significant numbers. Nice. I love me. Any low-cost, simple intervention to prevent complications. So that's, that's a major complication. And um, what organ have I left out? That's my favorite line in the whole interview. <laughs> and I think that's a good place to recap then. So in terms of complications, we're going to look out for uh, strokes and particularly bleeds in adults. With kidney failure, it's more so that they won't be able to concentrate their urine and they're going to be peeing out a ton. What was that word you used? Isosthenuria. Again, we need, yes. we need the nephrologists here. We, don't quote <laughs> me on that pronunciation. To prevent uh, the complications of isocinuria, we will need to make sure our patients are getting enough fluid to prevent dehydration and sickling. 
And lastly, we talked about acute chest, which is, again, virtually indistinguishable from pneumonia, but always want to be on high alert for it and talk to our hematology colleagues if we have concern for it. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share this with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to share your own tips, your own challenges with the topic, tweet us, leave us a comment on our website page or Instagram or Facebook page. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Jonathan Berry, Dr. Yang Jing, Dr. Jason Freed, Dr. Ram Reddy. Thank you to Doc Shpatia for audio editing, as well as to Dr. Samuel Woodworth for the accompanying graphic. As always, we'd love to hear feedback. Email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. 